0: Thank you very much, Professor Pandopoli, and thank you to the Foundation for the gracious welcome to my wife and to me. As China continues its historic leadership transition, its economy is stumbling, the Communist Party is faltering, the authority of the central government is eroding, the military is breaking free of civilian control, and the Chinese people, from one end of their country to the other, are taking to the streets often in violent protests. The wheels are coming off China. So many things are happening all at once, it's hard to know where to begin. But we will begin with the motor of China's rise. After 35 years of virtually uninterrupted growth, the Chinese economy has hit an inflection point. And now it has started a long downward slide. A slide? Beijing's National Bureau of Statistics claims that the Chinese economy grew by a robust 7.4% in the third calendar quarter of 2012. Yet this 7.4% claim is obviously fabricated. By far, the best indicator of Chinese economic activity is the production of electricity. And in the third quarter of last year, electricity production in the average monthly increase of electricity production was only 2.1%. Because the growth of electricity historically outpaces the growth of the underlying economy, it means that China could not have been growing much faster than zero. And China was not growing much faster than zero when its factories were filling Christmas orders and therefore should have been booming. And as bad as electricity numbers are, There is growing evidence to indicate that they have been inflated to make the economy appear better than it actually is. This downward trend, evident from electricity numbers, is consistent with the closely watched HSBC Purchasing (coughs) Managers Index, which indicates that the manufacturing sector, which is really the main portion of the Chinese economy, this HSBC index indicates that the manufacturing sector through September, which was the last month of the third quarter, contracted for 11 straight months. The fall-off in manufacturing was also reflected in the 3.6% drop in the producer price index, signaling deflation. Now, how can China have robust growth at 7.4% and have deflation at the same time? Corporate profits, which are harder to fake than the GDP numbers, (coughs) were also disappointing. Profits of state enterprises, the most profitable part of the Chinese economy. Profits of state enterprises, according to the Ministry of Finance, fell 11.4% in the first three quarters of 2012. And what is the most important sign that the Chinese economy is in distress? That would be money leaving China in the second quarter of 2012 there was at least hundred and ten billion dollars of illegal capital flight, perhaps more. When we get the data for the third quarter we will apparently see that much more money has illegally left China. So how bad is the situation? In September the Communist Party formed what it called the command group to fight communist officials and government employees fleeing the country. Now many analysts are claiming that the third quarter of last year was the bottom of the slump, And indeed, Beijing's numbers for October and November, the first two months of the fourth quarter, were good, much of them too good. Nonetheless, there were some genuine signals, such as we've seen in the manufacturing sector, that there was some recovery during that period because there we saw manufacturing recover a little bit in October and November and perhaps in December as well but there is little to indicate that this uptick will be pronounced or that it will last long. The uptick was a result of a political decision to put even more state money into property and infrastructure. Now China already has enough ghost cities, cities that have everything except people and it has enough high-speed rail lines to nowhere now, building more of them will indeed create gross domestic product, but an upturn in investment is simply not good news. State spending is taking China away from its only sustainable growth model, one that is based on consumption. Today, investment accounts for a simply incredible 49% of gross domestic product, and consumption has been declining. It now accounts for just 36 percent of the Chinese economy that's the lowest rate of any country in the world (coughs) one more point about the economy China unfortunately is creating debt faster than it is developing the ability to service it and this is a problem because China already has a massive debt problem as one economist said last year every province in China is a Greece Now this that debt-fueled spending spree looks like it was time to coincide with November's Communist Party 18th Congress. Now the Congress has passed, we are seeing leading indicators pointing to a new slump. The fall in the price of construction materials looks like the recovery is not going to last long. But equally troubling is an apparent fall in re- retail spending which is evidenced by falling profits of consumer products companies as well as retailers. And the recent bank runs in China indicate that this great credit expansion, which has fueled growth since the end of 2008, has just about come to the end. Now foreigners, by and large, are not too concerned about China's economic difficulties. They say that despite their severity, these problems are temporary and will soon be forgotten because China is in a supercycle upwards. And yes, China was in a three decade upward supercycle, and there were three principal reasons for it. First, there were Deng Xiaoping's transformational policies, which were encapsulated by the phrase reform and opening up. Second, the second decade of Deng's era of change coincided with the end of the Cold War, which meant the elimination of political barriers to international commerce, And third, all of this was occurring while China was benefiting from its demographic dividend, an extraordinary bulge in the workforce. Yet this sweet spot era is over because these three conditions no longer exist. Let's take a look at what's going on. First, China is no longer reforming. It's actually worse than that. (coughs) Hu Jintao, the the departing leader, has presided over an era that was marked by, on balance, the reversal of reform. And this reversal is evident from the partial renationalization of the Chinese economy with state cash, plus also the shutting out of foreign competitors. This anti-reform period will last for at least another five years. That's the term of the new Politburo Standing Committee, which was unveiled at the 18th party Congress. At least four and maybe as many as six of the seven-member body are so-called conservatives. And in the Chinese context, conservatives means hardline anti-reformers. Now this reform period, of course, is going to be important, because if it no longer exists, we no longer see the engine of China's economy. Hu Jintao's policies were popular inside of Beijing for many reasons but especially because they had the support of what is now known as the iron quadrangle of state enterprises, the security apparatus, the the People's Liberation Army, and Communist Party conservatives. Now others define the constituent elements of the conservatives differently. So for instance, some analysts include powerful families inside this circle of influence. But however you define the group of conservatives, it's clear that the entrenched interests now dominate politics inside the Chinese capital. There is only one known reformer on the Standing Committee. That's the number two ranked Li Ka-chung, who is slated to take over from Premier Wen Xiaobao next March at the National People's Congress meeting when government post-change hands. Yet Li is a slim reed of hope for positive change. He made his way onto the Standing Committee primarily because of his close political connections with Hu Jintao, and so far he has left a trail of only mediocre accomplishments on his way to the top. Now, apart from Li, the composition of the Standing Committee looks downright reactionary. One man, the 86-year-old Jiang Zemin, apparently has packed the Standing Committee, which is the apex of political power in the Chinese system. With no official position, the former Supremo appears to be the most powerful politician in China, surpassing both Xi Jinping, the newly appointed General Secretary, plus also Xi's predecessor, Hu Jintao. Zhang, who was Deng Xiaoping's successor, he generally favored reform during his term in office, but now he's protecting his family's business interests, as well as the interests of others who have become fabulously wealthy in recent years so is all lost? Well, as we just heard, Xi Jinping made his own southern <coughs> tour last month, mimicking Deng Xiaoping's famous trip in 1992 of Guangdong province, when Deng's trip kicked off years of reform. Although Xi Jinping is no Deng Xiaoping, many analysts are predicting that Xi will sponsor economic reform at the end of this year, reforms that will reduce Beijing's role in the economy as well as break up state monopolies. Now, these changes would be welcome, of course, because many of of the reasons for the slowdown in the Chinese economy relate to the fact that state enterprises have been using their newfound political clout to close off opportunities for the most progressive and productive elements of the Chinese economy, domestic entrepreneurs and foreign companies. Now, Xi Jinping and Li Kachang may be hoping to launch bold reforms to sustain growth throughout the coming decades, but the pair in the short term is likely to be concentrating on consolidating their political position in the Chinese system as well as maintaining political stability. In other words, Xi and Li are in no position to sponsor economic reform soon, which means that in an especially troubled transition they're not going to do so. After all, their predecessors Hu Jintao and Wen Bao were thought to be reformers, and they never got around to reform, even though they had 10 years to do so. China has progressed about as far as it can within its existing political framework. Further reform would threaten the power of the Communist Party, so the party will not sponsor much more change of that sort. For instance, a market economy requires the rule of law which in turn requires institutional curbs on government because these two limitations on power are incompatible with the party's ambitions to continue to dominate society china cannot make much more progress toward them at least within the current system and in the current system there is a growing consensus in Beijing that serious economic reform cannot occur unless there is also far-reaching political reform reform certainly more ambitious than the inner-party democracy that Chinese leaders like to talk about. Yet meaningful political reform is completely off the table, as the disappointing lineup of the new Standing Committee makes clear. China for this moment is trapped in various self-reinforcing and self-defeating feedback loops. In one of these loops, we see that a slumping economy is causing a crisis of legitimacy. The legitimacy crisis is in turn causing a wide-range political crackdown. The crackdown makes reform unlikely, and the absence of reform really prevents long-term economic growth. Just when China needs reform the most, the political system is least able to deliver it. Now, Beijing's cheerleaders are now starting to wonder whether the Communist Party will survive until the 19th Party Congress which is slated to occur in 2017. I mentioned that there were three conditions that created this extraordinary growth in China over the last three decades. The second one is the favorable external environment. Unfortunately for the Communist Party, that no longer exists. China's exports boomed in the post cold War era. In this unusually benign period in world history, Countries wanted to integrate China into the international system, and so therefore they were indulgent, tolerating its mercantilist policies. But we have left that time of uninterrupted growth. Now every nation wants to export more. And in an era of protectionism or of managed trade, whatever you care to call it, a trade-dependent China will not be able to export its way to prosperity like it did during its last downturn which followed the Asian financial crisis at the end of the 1990s. And in fact, nations have in fact become less (coughs) forgiving of China. Eighteen months ago, it was inconceivable that Pacific Basin nations would launch a major trade round that did not include China. But that is exactly what happened in November 2011 when President Obama announced the Trans-Pacific Partnership negotiations The terms of the deal include provisions such as the restrictions on state enterprises that were specifically designed to keep the Chinese out. And in President Obama's last State of the Union message, he targeted China with his Trade Enforcement Unit. And of course, we have just seen the first American presidential campaign where both candidates tried to outdo each other to see who was tougher on China. Now, yes, A lot of what we heard was indeed political rhetoric, but this rhetoric was because of China's mercantilist behavior, and it will result in real policy change, not just in the United States, but elsewhere. Third, let's look at the most fundamental reason why the Chinese economy has just about come to the end of the road. China, which during the reform era had one of the best demographic profiles of any nation, will soon have one of the worst. Because of the one-child policy, the country will begin to shrink within a decade, perhaps as early as 2020. But more important, the workforce has already peaked. That occurred in 2010, six years before Beijing's official demographers said that it would. Now, some Chinese scholars believe that the supply of workers in the under 35 cohort, the so-called golden age group, have already been exhausted in rural areas. (laughs) Others disagree. But even those who think that there still is a pool of workers on the farm acknowledge that not many of them want to move to the cities where where you see bad conditions and low pay. The reason why this is important is because the Chinese government announced last year that it was going to be building 20 new cities in each of the next 20 years. And urbanization is one of Li Ka Chong's four new modernizations which he announced in November. Now, up to now, and this is why this is important, up to now, urbanization has contributed to Chinese growth, but it's not clear where China is gonna find the people to power this process over the next two decades. The country already has its ghost cities, but now it seems determined to build even more of them. Urbanization is not sustainable unless there are people who are willing to move to the cities, but more important, to work in them. Urbanization, of course, will continue, but it will no longer power Chinese growth like it has during the last three decades. Demography may not be destiny, but it will create high barriers for China and Chinese growth. So the Chinese economy has entered a new supercycle, and this time the direction of the supercycle is down. It is in this adverse context, not the favorable one of the last three decades, that Chinese leaders will have to act. In other words, They will no longer be propelled by trends going forward. They will have to succeed in spite of them. And this is a critical threat for the Communist Party, which for three decades has based its legitimacy on the continual delivery of prosperity. Already, the Communist Party has exhibited signs of instability. We saw this during the leadership transition, as we just heard. There was intense infighting, and much of this was playing out in public. Officials were purged, businessmen arrested, military officers reprimanded. In March, Premier Wen Xiaobao publicly warned that China could descend into another cultural revolution. The Communist Party is now fragile. Although Jiang Zemin himself is influential, he is no Mao Zedong or Deng Xiaoping, a strong man able to enforce discipline. At this moment, China's weak leaders will find any excuse to do each other in each leader of the People's Republic has been weaker than his predecessor. And many believe that this progression from one man to collective rule is progress, and in many ways that it is. But nonetheless, we have to remember that no authoritarian regime in recent years has survived for long without a larger-than-life figure. And Chinese leaders are no longer grand. They are bland and uninspiring, and none of the current crop of the leaders none of them resonates with the Chinese public. Although Xi Jinping has just been chosen as General Secretary, analysts say that this infighting could get worse over the next five years as the Communist Party tries to designate his successor, who should be named at the next party Congress in five years' time. Moreover, in five years, if the Communist Party lasts that long, there'll be another wholesale change in the makeup of the Standing Committee. And all of this means is that the political infighting never stops in the new political China. And in this new political China, the military has become more powerful. Beginning as early as 2003, the flag officers of the People's Liberation Army have been drawn into civilian power struggles. And we saw this same dynamic this year in the current leadership transition. This process of remilitarization, of politics and policy, has gone so far that many people le- believe that the PLA has become or will soon become the most powerful faction in the Communist Party and clearly this could happen because the military has maintained its cohesiveness much better than other factions in the party especially the amorphous princeling group of vice president <laughs> of, of, of general secretary Xi Jinping Now from all outward appearances, the military is playing an expanded role in politics and policy in the Chinese capital. Senior officers are acting independently of civilian officials, they are openly criticizing them, and they are making pronouncements on areas that once were considered the exclusive province of diplomats. The implications of these internal changes are obviously large because the generals and the admirals do not want a closer relationship with the international community. Yet there's an even more fundamental problem. Quote, China's military spending is growing so fast that it has overtaken strategy. This was said by Wang Jing of Singapore's Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. Quote, the young officers are taking control of strategy, and it is like young officers in Japan in the 1930s. They are thinking about what they can do, not what they should do. Today, China's officers, from generals to lieutenants, are thinking about what they want. And as a result, they have become dangerous, arrogant, and bellicose. By their own admission, they are spoiling for a fight. And in a time of political transition, there is almost no political leader who is in a position or willing to take a risk to tell the top brass what to do. The military's expanding role in politics and policy brings us to the next topic, China's new foreign policy. As the military has become more powerful, it has pushed the country down a path of high-profile force projection. This is a strategic miscalculation that history will remember. Already, we have seen China pushing too hard, too long, taking on everyone at once. China, as a result, is losing friends fast. We need a little background. Beijing leaders in 2009 looked at the economic turmoil around the world, and they knew, they just knew, that they were going to dominate the 21st century. They saw the United States and the rest of the West, and they believed that they were in terminal decline. The Chinese leaders then became proud, bold, and we can say that they were suffering from a very bad case of overconfidence. In early 2010, Beijing's civilian leaders made a series of public threats against the world, and China's military officers started to talk in public about waging a war in the near future, a, quote, hand-to-hand fight with the U.S., as one of them put it. In addition to the United States, India, Japan, and South Korea, China took on its neighbors to the south and the east, especially those bordering the South China Sea the Philippines, Malaysia, Brunei, Indonesia, and Vietnam. So of course, the inevitable happened. At the urging of regional leaders, from traditional friends like Australia to former foes like Vietnam, Washington changed its China policy. In November 2011, the Obama administration pivoted, or rebalanced, to use the current lingo. And it did so by deploying additional military forces to the region as well as targeting Asia on the trade and diplomatic fronts. Now, other nations are changing their China policies as well. For example, when Shinzo Abe became (coughs) prime minister for the first time in 2006, his first foreign trip was to China. This time around, his first foreign trip will be to Washington. So what does all of this mean for India? (coughs) In 2006, Taro Aso, when he was Japan's foreign minister, proposed an arc of freedom and prosperity for Asia. And then the idea went nowhere, because Asia's diplomats were optimistic about engaging the Chinese. Now Shinzo Abe is pursuing his values diplomacy, which emphasizes freedom, democracy, and human rights. Quote, we will deepen ties, he said, quote, with nations that share and uphold these values. And what nations did he mention? He mentioned two in particular, Australia and India. So as we can see, a grand coalition of democracies <coughs> is slowly forming in reaction to China. And at the same time, China's friends are trying to put distance between themselves and Beijing, which is one thing that we see happening in Burma, for instance. Now, India, of course, does not want to take sides. No nation wants to. And I think South Block still thinks that it can engage the Chinese. Yet, I believe that you will have no choice but to join the ARC and anchor its southern border. I think you'll have no choice because until you do become part of that, Beijing will continue to violate your borders with more incursions on the ground and in the air. It will continue to interfere with your ties with other nations. It will press border claims more vigorously. It will increase the frequency of its naval patrols in the Indian Ocean off your coast. It will support even more Pakistani terrorists. And it will promote the breakup of your nation. Beijing these days has good ties only with a handful of countries, the Nepal's and the Zimbabwe's of the world. And that should be a warning to all of us. There is no appeasing and expansionist China, and what makes China a threat to others also makes it a threat to you. Today we are at the Foundation for Nonviolent Alternatives. In this case, the nonviolent alternative is for India to show strength. Show strength, and Beijing will leave you alone, and there will be peace. Yet if your diplomats betray a sense of weakness, then China will challenge you. Now, despite everything, governments around the world, including <coughs> yours, will want to work with Xi Jinping. There is always a renewal of hope when a new Chinese leader shows up on the scene. But this optimism is not going to last long. Continual turmoil inside China is not going to permit Beijing to pursue good relations in the long term. No country, other than countries that decide to submit to China, can have stable ties with a Beijing that is in distress. China is a danger to the international community, but it is especially a danger to the country that it fears most in the long run. And what country is that? That would be India. Thank you.